0: Hello and welcome to the PCRS podcast series. In this series, we'll be bringing you experts on a number of respiratory related topics. The podcast has been produced to update you and to give you food for thought about how you deliver your respiratory services. So I'm here again. I'm Jane Scullion, consultant nurse and with my colleague and, and friend, Steve Holmes. A GP in Somerset, and we're going to look at risk stratification. Most of you know us. Most of you are people working with people with asthma, making these decisions about risk stratification. But we're willing to be challenged in our thoughts. Um, Love to hear from you if you have any comments on what we talk about. And Steve, I'm going to go over to you to start with, because I know you were the first author on a risk stratification tool that came out for PCRs. Very pragmatic guide
1: recommend that everybody reads it yes uh thank you very much Jane great to be with you again um yes I'm just a bit worried now I might say something that wasn't in the pragmatic guide that people will pick up on but but hopefully we'll be fairly consistent because I think most people agree on those people with asthma that are at high risk and I have to say although I was the first author involved in organizing it I was joined by many colleagues from specialist and primary care who have far better expertise than i do so i'm copping out at this point but but i think yes it, we've been through two years since this paper came out we've been um challenged in a way because of covid and not being able to see people face to face and now we're left with a lot of people about six percent of the population with asthma many of whom haven't been seen face to face a lot of had telephone calls but many of whom haven't been face-to-face. So challenging to know who do we go for first and what do we do?
0: So I think what we have to do is is to make the best of, of what we've got. So we can't obviously have everybody in with asthma and view all of them. So we have to have some sort of risk stratification. All of us know that anybody with asthma can be at risk. You know, The National Review of Asthma Death showed that people of all severities died. But there are those things that would make us think twice and would be really useful to address. What's your first one, Steve?
1: I, well, I guess my first thinking point is if I'm a community nurse, how can I identify those of my patients the most at risk? If I'm in general practice, how can I do that? If I'm in the specialist care, how can I do it? Because we've all been affected by this. And certainly the area that I'm most familiar with in, in general practice I would be looking at things that I can pull out of the computer, computerized medical records to identify those that I think are going to be more at risk and prioritize those first. So I do have an advantage of having um, clinical notes on the computerized record that, that will make it a bit easier.
0: Yeah. So I think one of the things that we can pull out easily in primary care is short-acting beta agonist use, and and we talk about this in many different aspects of care with asthma, so both in the management, both in the reduction in terms of having a greener environment. And we have this figure of 12. Where's that from?
1: I think my memory of that is it's from the National Review of Asthma Deaths, where they they were looking at prioritising and said this should be a priority for urgent Uh, reassessment of a patient has had 12 sabers in the last year and some computerized systems will pick up six in the last six months on the EMIS and system one system so i think that's where it comes from but then if you look at gina and the nice guidance they suggest that good control is needing what less than two puffs twice a week so that's probably one inhaler a year
0: So that's problematic for all of us to think about. And and instinctively, we think 12 is an awful lot, but I guess it's about needed use and habitual use. You know, people who just use their inhalers because that's what they've always done before they go for a walk, before they do some exercise twice a day, just because why wouldn't you? It's picking that out and working out who's at risk because they're actually requiring it for their airways or actually they're just using it because they've always used it.
1: And I I think if I was... In a situation, thinking about this nationally, we've got about 15% of the population who who use more than 12 short short-acting beta agonists uh, inhalers a year, sorry, 15% of the asthma population. And I think on that basis, I would go for the 12s first in my practice. And if I can crack the 12s, I might go down to nine and six, but I've got to go for those that are on the most to begin with.
0: And do you recommend that they would go for specialist care or is it a primary care concern or is it both?
1: I think it depends on where you can get your specialist care from and what you define as specialist care. I think you need to have an interest and you need to review these people properly and try to work out why they are using the extent of inhalers they are. And if we sent 15% of the um, asthma population which I can easily identify next week into specialist care, that would probably result in about a million referrals next week coming into um, res- the respiratory units around the country. Or if you just sent it to specialist care, it would be 125,000, no, tertiary units, about 125,000 each.
0: That would easily be accommodated at the moment, I think, Steve,
1: hmm.
0: um, is the answer to that one. It's a bit like the other, you know, the other risk stratification of people who've been admitted or, Attended the emergency department, um, being looked at because they're at risk. Again, that's big numbers.
1: Mm, And and I think probably probably I think the first one of those at really high risk I would suggest are those already on oral corticosteroids all the time.
0: And and what percentage of our population asthma population would be on oral corticosteroids regularly?
1: I'm not sure of an exact number. Do you do you know?
0: No, because I thought that they should have been referred before they got to that stage,
1: and and I th- I thought the same as well. Um, I suspect there's going to be perhaps less than one percent, so it's a small number. We should be able to identify easily if you do that on a computerised system. Some of them will be on an oral corticosteroid with asthma, but on it for their polymyalgia rheumatica or some other problem. Yeah, some of them. Some of them will be on regular oral corticosteroids for potentially their asthma. And I think that's where I think we should be making sure those people, even if they've been discharged from specialist care, are referred back.
0: Okay, so that's a useful tip, you know, making sure that it's not comorbidity that's the reason for the oral corticosteroids, but it actually is for the asthma control. And, and, and something else about, you know, how many courses in, in a year? Two or more courses is, is in the guidance?
1: Yes, I seem to remember there was a a good bit of research done in the UK and uh, the US that showed that the average person with asthma would have a course of oral corticosteroids every decade, about every 12 years, and would turn up at an emergency department or be admitted every 45 years, which means two courses would be an average person with asthma 20 years of their life. Having that in one year sounds a little bit odd. It certainly
0: does. That, that's, that's, that's quite a, a useful factor behind it, isn't it? What, I was just trying to think then, and I think it reverts back to one of our earlier com- conversations about it. Has the incidence of regular oral corticosteroids or the courses that people have taken changed in the last two years?
1: I'm afraid I don't know the answer to that. It'd be really interesting to find out. But I suspect... We know that the number of admissions has dropped by about a third. Um, I suspect that if we looked at the number of courses of prescribed steroid, there would have been a surge at the start of COVID where people said, I need to get some in because the country had run out of toilet rolls, pasta, and everything else that people wanted. And therefore, if I'm stocked up, at least I've got some in if needed. But the actual use, I think, again, would be a very interesting sort of area probably somebody like jenny quint would have the answer that she could be able to pull out of one of her analyses on a computer system
0: so there's the challenge for jenny we want to know the answers jenny happy to publish it in the primary care respiratory
1: update yes that would go down well wouldn't it
0: (laughs) so in terms of our risk stratification so far we've got the regular ocs users yep those admitted
1: and i I think anyone admitted and, and in in my day If you stayed in A&E for 12 hours, that was counted as an emergency department um, attendance. But nowadays things have changed. So admissions are, and EDs are probably merged into the same area. But but I think people who have had an emergency department attendance deserve an appropriate review, at least by someone interested in primary care. If not, and if it's uncontrolled, thinking about a specialist referral.
0: No, I think you're right. And I think it's about the the numbers of admissions. And also that first admission is such an opportunity to get things right for people.
1: And, And I have to confess, pragmatically, seeing them two days after they've come out of hospital with their asthma doesn't often help me. Seeing them 10 days later when they're starting to improve again, or they have improved and they're ready to get back to work um, and they can reflect on why things went wrong, to me, is a much handier way of being able to prevent things for the longer term. So I I'd like to see people a couple of weeks after their emergency department attendance to, to see what's been happening there.
0: And I think it's about that joined up care, isn't it? That communication across primary and secondary care about what's going on, because you know, pragmatically in secondary care, especially at the moment, even if we wanted to review people within a six-week framework, it's not going to happen. The follow-up could be four months after their admission. That's going to do nothing. Yeah.
1: And and I and I guess that's that we we have the same challenges trying to do it in two days. Yeah. Especially when we don't know they're discharged for the first week, or if we do, um, the patient doesn't phone up or we can't get hold of them. So you know, if we there there are big challenges to our system, but our patients. It, is a, it should be a rare event. We should be reviewing these people properly.
0: Okay, so we've got that. We've got the courses of oral corticosteroids and the short-acting beta agonists. And I guess you know, the, the fifth point this that we should cover is about those ongoing symptoms despite control. So how are we going to define ongoing symptoms and what do we mean despite control?
1: Um, and, I, and I guess that's ongoing symptoms despite an attempt to control them. I think this is the hardest one for all of us uh, in, in primary care. It's not something I can search on the computer. So I've got to rely on picking this up when someone comes in for their review or they attend for an acute presentation saying, well, I got reviewed two months ago, but I'm still having lots of symptoms. So that's for us to pick up either an annual review or opportunistically on presentation. And I think it's reasonable to say, you know, a lot of people, if they do have ongoing symptoms, check inhaler technique, all the usual stuff, is it the right diagnosis, check inhaler technique, review, they often get better with minor modifications to inhaler technique or to their medications they're using. Those that are ongoing often takes three or four months to determine. But again, I think if we're not winning in primary care, we should be asking a more specialist environment to get involved.
0: Yeah, so I'm just going to ask you a question because I I think about this quite often. Is there any benefit to an annual review? Um,
1: I think there is. I think it's a touching point with the patient who might otherwise say, I'll just keep doing what I've always done and just keep using the inhaler, perhaps incorrectly, as I've always done, um, perhaps overusing treatments at times, perhaps accepting symptoms at times. Um, this is our planned chance to say, is there anything better for you? Should I change that cough mixture to called Tint IOD CAF around now that you've been on for the last 30 years and give you an effective treatment for asthma? No, it, it's a chance to just review where they're up to.
0: And to challenge you on that, Steve, does it actually review the people who are at risk or does it actually review a lot of the population who will turn up for their review because they always turn up for their reviews?
1: Yes, good challenge. And I think um, a lot of people will turn up because they want to turn up and they want to optimise their health. And they're the easy ones. I think there are a lot of people with um, who are at higher risk who will come in with persuasion. And I think there are some who prefer to do their own thing where we have to work hard to engage them. I don't know if you've got any tips for doing that.
0: No, I think the hard to reach are often hard to reach, despite everything that we do try. So, And, and often they're the people that are using the emergency departments or, or the admissions as a source of um, you know, instant control or getting access to services. So I think, again, it's about, you know, there's not a one size fits all. But when we're thinking about risk stratification, we have to do the best for the majority of people that we can do the best for.
1: And, and and I agree. And I, I think there are two, two groups that I think about with those those sort of how do I get them in? I think one group has a very chaotic lifestyle and you can see that in all sorts of other ways and a challenge mental health wise, often with, with other things going on that are very critical to what's happening to them as a person. I think the other message I heard fairly familiarly in, in a lot of patients in primary care is, I can't see the point of coming in for a review. You ask me questions, tick the box, and I don't get to ask the questions I want to, and I don't get to make the changes to my life or to get the type of questions answered that I want answering. And that's a sad reflection of a tick box mentality that I think we should improve on.
0: Totally agree with that. Um, You know, a bad review is is worse than no review sometimes, especially if the person becomes disgruntled. And it is about consistency isn't it you know it's it, you will see i will see where people have gone for review and when you ask the person what did the review consist of they're unable to tell you and they're unable to tell you of the benefit of it so
1: and if it's the same each year why bother and, and sadly i have heard that a few times but i know we can do better as a as a profession as a as a health community and i think we are doing better overall overall
0: so i guess Probably have covered most points there, Steve. Is there anything else you wanted to add into the mix?
1: No, I, th- I, think, I I don't think there is, other than let's get the highest ones first and build our way down that pyramid to get people who have ongoing symptoms and, um, despite trying to control their problems, but work, work, at the, uh, work on manageable chunks rather than try and take on the whole world in one go.
0: Totally agree with you. Bite-sized pieces make a difference steve as always it's been fascinating talking to you so thank you
1: and you jane thank you very much
0: thank you for listening please remember to subscribe for future podcasts goodbye